Hi, listeners. Welcome back to the AC Podcast. This is Andy Steiger, and I am joined today with special guest Max Jaganathan. He is the director of Thinking Faith and is an adjunct speaker for Apologics Canada, coming all the way from Singapore. Welcome, Max. Thanks, Andy. Great to be with you as always. It is great to have you on the show. Really looking forward to learning more about you and jumping into a very interesting topic. For those of you who don't know Max, he is an international speaker who is passionate about helping people make sense of current issues and life's big questions through the lens of the Christian message. Max has spoken around the world in banks, businesses, universities, and political institutions, including Facebook, Google, and Goldman Sachs. He has also addressed advisors in Singapore's Economic Development Board and Canada's National Parliament. He regularly responds to invitations to speak at churches and conferences. Um, Max was educated at the Australian National University and the University of Oxford, and he's currently undertaking a PhD in law. And in fact, I know one of his advisors. His research interests relate to the relationship between faith, politics, public policy, economics, and moral reasoning. Now, Max, you uh, are married to Fiona, and you guys have two children. What are their ages? Uh, we Yes, we have two kids, Zachary, who is four years old, and Ariel, she is two. And we've got a third one on the way. All right, and a third one on the way. Uh, and if uh, that wasn't enough, um, you are, what are you, six, was it four or six days into having COVID? I'm six days into COVID, so <laughs> I've, I've, jo- I've joined the club. I hopefully get some kind of a jacket at the end of it. But yeah, six, six days in, so far, not so good. <laughs> So, I mean, that's the kind of dedication we're talking about here, that he is is in the throes of COVID, the entire family, actually, and yet he's still on the podcast. God bless you. Listen, <laughs> he told me that he's at about 65% of normal capacity. So, if you don't like the show, listen, it could be better. Give him another shot. But if you do like it, just think about how great he'll be when he's 100%. That's right. We're just lowering expectations. So you're you're impressed either way. <laughs> oh man. Well, hopefully you're gonna be okay here. Praying health upon you. I think I think many people these days are either have COVID or know somebody with COVID. Uh the the world seems to be in the throes of it right now. Now in uh, Singapore, where you're at, just just give me a, a sense of the vibe. What's it like? If I go to the store, do I need to wear a mask? Uh, do do they got the whole vaccine certificate thing going on there in in Singapore? Like, what are the restrictions? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much right. It's um, it's a Singapore, as you would know, Andy. It's a very technocratic country and and city, and because of that, that they're, they're highly highly competent the systems, but there's also a little bit of um, paranoia, um, and a little bit of an aversion to any kind of risk. So yeah, face masks everywhere, indoors and outdoors still lots of checking in. Um, everyone is tracked. Um, we're all, we're almost all vaccinated. I think it's over 90% now. Um, so it's, it's very much a, a, a COVID world. We've been drifting in and out of lockdowns for the last couple of years. Uh, thankfully not as badly as some places, but also a lot more stringent than other places. So Look, we're we're grateful. Uh, there's very little to complain about, but yeah, it's definitely definitely still a thing. I've always uh, enjoyed my time in Singapore. Going to Singapore is like simultaneously going into the future of technology 
and entering a sauna simultaneously. You know, like I've never, I've never, <laughs> I've never been someplace more humid and more technologically advanced in my life. Period. The humidity is high. The technology is even higher, and the taxes are low. I think that's how they make it work here. So your your read on it is absolutely right. I've only been here for four years, but uh, I couldn't have summarized it better than than what you said. The the sauna is still pumping, the air conditioners are still pumping, but yeah, it's it's a bit of a technological utopia in in some senses. So they're they're very much at the cutting edge of um, almost every discipline of technology here. Listen, we're freezing over here in Canada, so I would I, I am I am quite envious uh, of the of the sun. I've I've only seen it a uh, a few times as of as of recent, which has been fairly depressing. We want to we want to get into uh, an interesting topic though today, and I think this is an interesting topic, um, especially given you know where you are in Singapore. We're going to be looking at uh, the subject of why bother with God if I'm happy, and I think this is interesting because I asked you, you know, what's a big topic that's going on in you know asia pacific and and you were saying like this this is one of the big one of the big issues and i and i think it's interesting because uh that 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 is a big topic over here in canada as well now technically we are part of you know asia pacific uh and and so and so maybe i shouldn't be surprised that that's a that's a at least this part of the ocean right this is this is a big question that people are dealing with but i think it's an interesting question given how much comfort and success, you know, is, is taking place in like Singapore, um, and, and Canada are very wealthy nations that we, we live at a very high standard. And so it, it, kind of, kind of doesn't surprise me, if you will, that, that we're wrestling with those sort of questions. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Andy. And I think it's, it's interesting. There are so many parallels between Singapore and Canada. You know, you look at the uh, the Econom- the Economist Intelligence Unit and the OECD Livability Index Indices and all of these sorts of things. Um, and it's the same old suspects, you know. It's a couple of Australian cities, a few Canadian cities, Singapore, and then the Swiss are involved and then, the you know, the Scandinavians are always there. Um, and it's always around the most livable place or where happiness is optimised or where the most, the highest levels of life satisfaction are. But Interestingly, as I've started researching and looking into what they actually mean by happiness, it's worth taking a second and a third and a deeper look, I think, at the actual metric and metrics of what a successful society actually is. It's easy to say happiness and just throw that away, but what does happiness actually mean? What does it look like? Is it enough? And how does that actually play out? And in highly, highly developed and relatively comfortable societies like across Canada and in places like Singapore, it's easy to think because the, you know, health, education and employment outcomes are pretty good that that's the that's the ball game when it comes to happiness. Whereas when we look more deeply and something like COVID has brought this all to the surface, there, there's much more to human fulfilment and flourishing than simply just health, education, and employment outcomes, um, however important those things continue to be. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Maybe this is the the PhD, you know, coming out. But as soon as, you know, as soon as I look at a question like this, you know, why bother with God if I'm happy? You know, that that's the immediate question that's going in my mind. Well, let, let's define happiness. You know, what 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 do we mean by that? And, and ultimately, what I'm hearing you say, and I, I think this is true, particularly of places like 
you know, so I'm located in the Vancouver, British Columbia area, which is constantly rated as one of the most beautiful, you know, best places to live, although incredibly expensive. And, and you know, Singapore is interesting in that regard, too, because it's constantly being referred to as this incredibly, you know, great uh, place to live, but also extremely I- expensive. But how, you know, from your time working with business leaders, uh, working with, uh, you know, people in Singapore who, who tend to operate um, at, at a high level, it is, it is all business all the time. From my experience with Singaporeans, like, like they, they tend to be very focused. Like, what, what are you seeing just as like kind of a day-to-day, how are people defining happiness? Yeah, it's a great question. The the primary driver of happiness in Singapore, and I think across the big metropolitan hubs of, of Southeast Asia and Asia more generally, um, is very much achievement. So this is a city of achievers. Um, and I think Eastern cultures broadly still having honour and shame as their main psychological drivers. Achievement is the way to establish honour and to avoid shame. And so achievement is the ultimate driver. And, you know, since the post-war reconstruction and the globalisation of, you know, national economies, that paradigm of honour and shame and achievement has been overlaid onto the capitalist system. So it's really about professional advancement. It's about wealth. It's about status. It's about how well your startup is doing or how far you're advancing in the big corporation you work for, how close to the C-suite you are, how well-connected you are in, you know, industry and business and economic and political circles. So in, in that sense, here in Asia, the, the metrics of happiness uh, are not all that different from what they are in the West, but particularly in places like Singapore, uh, there is such a, a motivation and a drive that is inculcated into literally kids when they're four, five, six years old, and that never leaves. And I, I see that when I speak to the to the investment houses and the banks and the C-suites and um, doesn't matter whom you're speaking to in the economy, people have been striving and striving and striving their whole lives to it to achieve because what they have been told either explicitly or implicitly is that that is the key to happiness. If you just apply yourself and work hard and work hard and work hard, um, then you will achieve and you will have honor and status. And that is how you will be happy. And this is not something that's geographically localized in Asia anymore, because as you well know, particularly in Canada uh, and, you know, particularly on the West coast, um, Asian expat communities are, you know, to put it bluntly, we are everywhere right now. And, <laughs> and so those psychological drivers have gone into, into Vancouver and Paris and London and New York and Sydney and, um, you know, the, the suburbs of every Western country you can think of where there are Asian refugees, immigrants, expats. Uh, and so this, this drive to achieve professionally um, has been built up and built up and is barely questioned anymore amongst the Asian diaspora as the metric to happiness. Um, and that's not an exclusively Eastern thing either. I think you find just as many uh, Caucasian Westerners uh, with that mindset too. Well, l- let me dig deeper into that because I'm curious, you know, how you've processed this. You said you've been in Singapore now for four years. Uh, let's give a little bit of background to yourself. Where, where did you where did you come from? From my understanding of your story, and I'd like you to unpack it, you know, being from Sri Lanka, being a refugee, finding yourself in Australia, like paint... Paint that picture for us of how you got to Singapore and how you're and how and like what what did you see along the way and how are you processing all that from like for example you know 
from like uh, even just being in Australia to going to Singapore and the differences there? Yeah, yeah, sure. So yeah, as you as you say, I was born in Sri Lanka, but left Sri Lanka when I was just one year old uh, as a refugee with my family and and not just my family, with a whole bunch of relatives and and not just them, with a, a big chunk of the Sri Lankan Tamil community. We were we were a refugee ethnicity. We're a, sadly we're a refugee culture, and so um, many of us, tens of thousands of us, left Sri Lanka in the mid '80s for places like Australia, Canada, the United Kingdom, and the uh, United States. Um, and many other places around the world. Thankfully, me and most of my family found ourselves in Australia, Canada, and the UK, a few of us in the US as well. And so then I spent the next 30 years of my life growing up in Australia. So culturally, uh, I'm very much Australian. I'm about as Australian as it comes. I was one year old when I got to Australia. But that being said, not just the DNA, but the cultural environment in which I grew up uh, was still very much Eastern and was very much Asian. Um, and as as people know, uh, you know, we Asians, we kind of take that principle of uh, it takes a village to raise a kid uh, to its extreme. So I grew up with all of my uncles and aunties around me, all of my cousins around me, um, even my cousins who were living overseas. I, I spent a lot of time growing up in, Can- in Canada, in Toronto. I've been to Toronto, I think, 14 or 15 times. I've been to London many times. And that was all because of family. That was all to to spend time with family. Because of that, the Asian psychological drivers, the honor, shame stuff, uh, the happiness driven by wealth and status, professional advancement, all of that was very much inculcated. So that's happening on one track. On the other track, I'm growing up in Australia, which is this, and it's unfair to generalize, but for the purpose of a podcast, the stereotypes do hold true. It's it's enormously laid back. Um, it's deeply meritocratic. People are very relaxed. They don't prejudge you as a general rule. They they take you at face value. And so I, I was blessed with m- multiple friendships across multiple cities in Australia that I got to live in, um, where you know race and culture and those sorts of norms were uh, were really never a limiting factor or even much of an influencing factor. I was just able to to get on with it. And uh, Australia. If we talk about the East or Eastern cultures as honor-shame-driven cultures, Australia is very much a, a convenience-driven culture. So success and happiness is measured by how convenient your life is. Um, people are looking for good executive lifestyles. People have boats. People have holiday houses. People have beach houses. Uh, but you're not really, you know, judged well necessarily for having a beach house. You're just judged as being happy if you have access to a beach house, even if it's a friend's. Um, whereas if you're Asian, you kind of got to own the beach house to get the status. So growing up like that, happiness was defined as a number of different things for me. You know, I have 23 first cousins. Most of them are doctors or physicians of some type. So we very much grow up in that Asia, you know, Eastern, honor, shame, professional mindset. Um, but then I go and, you know, hang out with a lot of my friends from high school um, and, and university, almost mo- most many of whom were Caucasian Australians, you know, and we'd be surfing and at the beach and, um, yeah, the metrics of success and happiness were just very different. So now coming to Singapore again after growing up in Australia um, and being in the workforce in Australia for eight or nine years in law and politics and now coming here, it's been interesting to be dropped back into the paradigm of achievement again. Um, not to oversimplify it, but Australia is much more of a paradigm of meritocracy and fun, not to oversimplify it, but to come back here, it's very much, much more a paradigm of, of achievement. Because of that, there is more pressure here. Um, that's not to suggest that there isn't pressure or there wasn't pressure in Australia. There's still enormous 
you know, financial pressure and the pressures to own a home and the cost of living uh, and so forth. And I'd imagine very similar to, to Canada in many ways. But I, I do see the contrast. Um, I do see the contrast uh, where when, achieve, when you, achievement is part of the deal here. When did you become a Christian? How did that, how'd that take place? Uh, so I was living in Perth. I went to high school in Perth. So I did um, a lot of my growing up, quote, unquote, there by God's grace, had some great friends there. Um, and when I was 15 years old, I was at an event that my parents had actually invited along one of their friends to. She's a Hindu, a close family friend of theirs. Um, and I just had to kind of get dragged along because there were no babysitters. And so I was just sitting there and this was an evangelistic event at a, at a big happy clappy assembly of God church in, in Perth, in Western Australia. Um, and I gave my life to Jesus that night. Um, I just felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit. I was baptized a couple of months later and um, it's been up and down since then, but I've never really looked back. So my faith journey kind of cut through the middle of that whole um, success metric modulation journey that I, that I just talked about. And that's one of the reasons why I asked that. Yeah. Because it throws a monkey wrench in all that, doesn't it? It's an enormous monkey wrench, Andy. It's an enormous monkey wrench. And it's, it wasn't until that happened that I began to slowly understand that there is actually more to this word success than what the world will tell you, whether it's a Sri Lankan definition or an Australian definition or a, an Oxford definition or a Singaporean definition, all of which I've been exposed to. From the day that I gave my life to Jesus, that all began to change and God continuously shows me more and more about what happiness actually means, about the fact that there are actually some important things to think about under the happiness paradigm, truth, suffering, joy. These are all ideals that actually supersede this word happiness. And to reduce, you know, success in life to this funny thing we call happiness, um, thank God that you know, he's clear about this with, with those who are walking with him, um, he's a very sad watering down of why he made us. And, you know, as you would well know, C.S. Lewis, as he does so often, puts this beautifully, and I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, if happiness was all I was after, you know, all I would need would be a good bottle of whiskey and a few good friends. Um, we're made for much, much more than happiness. So it's not that I disagree with happiness as a, a life satisfaction goal, but there's it's really important that we see happiness in a, in a paradigm of truth first and in the reality of suffering second. And thirdly, and probably most, most importantly, um, in the context of a relationship with God where he offers us this thing called joy, you know, which is qualitatively different to happiness. This, I think this is an important point to put into the context of this question because I, I, get, I, get this, I actually get this question quite regularly. Where uh, if I'm speaking, and I'm sure you do as well, that's why you, you why you brought it up because you know you'll be at an event speaking at something, and and I will either meet a person say it saying it directly, or I will meet somebody who's talking about a friend, and and they'll ask me, and I, I get this probably the most, Andy, what do I do about my friend or my family member who just doesn't care about God? They they are happy to party or work, make money, you know, spend time on their boat or whatever it is. And, and that's enough for them. They don't, they're not interested in God sort of thing, right? Why bother? Uh, and so then people ask, you know, what, what do you do in the midst of that? And, you know, you know, how do I, how do I reach that person? And, and I, and, and, and so let's, let's unpack that a little bit, because I think that that directly applies to what you're saying here. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. So I think 
the in short answer to that person, I think the first thing to say, as, as you would well know, Andy, you know, you've been at this longer than me, is that it really depends on where they are, that friend, you know, where they are emotionally, where you are with them relationally. Uh, and so there's no one pro forma answer. But what I have found is that these three things are helpful. How we use them needs to be modulated and calibrated appropriately. But I think it comes down to one of three things, truth, suffering, and joy. And understanding and being able to communicate to people that don't care or either even at least claim not to care about God or their need for him, it really comes down to communicating, and this could happen over a conversation, it could happen over a 10-year friendship, that truth is indispensable, suffering is unavoidable, and happiness is not enough. Those are the three kind of deep realisations that God gave me, um, both for myself and for other people, that I, I try to communicate on this question, that truth is indispensable, suffering is unavoidable, and happiness is not enough. And obviously it depends on where people are as to which one of those you draw on. But just to start on the truth thing, I mean, Andy, you remember a movie called The Truman Show, an old Jim Carrey movie? Oh, yeah. It's a classic. It's mandatory for all Canadians to watch all Jim Carrey movies, right? <laughs> yeah, anybody who's Canadian, you've got you've to watch. I would hope so. So I think I'm an honorary Canadian. I used, to, I used to love Jim Carrey's movies, for better or worse. But, I mean, that movie, The Truman Show, kind of sums up the truth point for me. Um, he's, at the beginning of that movie, he's happy. He's living in what seems to be a utopic kind of lifestyle. He's happy. He's content. He has relationships. He has friends. The weather's good. He has a job. He seems to have everything he needs based on his understanding of what happiness is. But then, of course, as the movie progresses, we find out that his whole life is a lie, that his whole town is actually a TV set. And he's been adopted, if not abducted, by a media corporation since he was a baby. And there's cameras everywhere. Everyone in his life is an actor and no one you know, he's the only one that doesn't know it. And the rest of the movie is about his journey to discovering that and getting out. And it doesn't matter who you are or what you believe or what you say about God. When you are watching that movie, everyone is cheering and encouraging and hoping and urging and yearning for him to get out. We want him to discover the truth and we want him to be free. Why is that? Because there is a, a yearning deep in every human heart, no matter what we believe, for truth. No one wants to live a lie. No one wants to have their life based on a lie. No one wants to be in friendships when, you know, it's possible those friendships are not authentic. No one wants to be in a, a marital or a spousal relationship where they're being cheated on constantly. And no one would say, oh, as long as I don't know, it's okay. I don't really care. That, that's a very rare kind of thing if we're being honest with ourselves. So there is a, a yearning in every human heart for truth. And so this might be a bit more of an intellectual reason, but the, the first and best reason why we should bother with God, even if we're happy, uh, is because he's real, is because it's true. And, and I'm sure as an, as an apologist uh, and a preacher and a pastor, and he, you know, you've said this many times, I don't know who first said this, but the, the best reason to be a Christian is because it's true. Yeah. All, all, all other apologetics is window dressing. The best reason is because it's true. Yeah, I have a friend of mine, uh, Jay Warner Wallace. Like, he's a homicide detective turned apologist. He's written quite a few books, but that that is his thing. He is constantly going back to that that idea. Hey, it's true. And this this is an interesting point that you're right. When we watch movies, whether it be the Truman Show or I think of other movies such as The Matrix and and various others, people are always, you know, applauding, you know, and and wanting those characters to find the truth. But, but isn't it interesting how we will kind of fall into these, like, deceptive ways of going, oh, I don't actually care, you know, or I just want the the happiness, but which, in, which is interesting, by the way, in, the, in a movie like The Matrix, where you do get that, 
you have this Judas type character who sells out, you know, the main guy so he can go back in the matrix because he wants to be quote unquote happy. And so it's interesting that we would actually see that as the villain. Absolutely. And, and that's, I mean, I'm glad you raised that scene because that scene in the original matrix is one of the most telling and most fascinating scenes because it, when he's talking about, and he's really upfront, right? This guy, like you can give him snaps for being honest. He says, I don't want to, I remember the line. He says, I don't want to remember anything. I don't want to remember that I've betrayed all of humankind. I don't want to remember any of it. I want to be rich. I want to be in a mansion. I want to have all the servants. I want to have all the food. And when he's saying that, everyone's just sitting there and there's just zero resonance. Like there's zero respect. There's zero resonance. Um, he, he immediately becomes the villain. And it's easy to think that people don't like him because he's the bad guy in the movie. But the reason is because he's abandoned the importance of truth. He has betrayed that yearning deep down in every human heart that we are seekers of truth. All people are seekers of truth. Um, and when you betray that, and we all have a little one of those guys inside us, yeah. that's where this myth comes out that, oh, you know, I don't need God. I, th I think a lot of people would just love not to need God. But I think deep down when you go looking for truth, it's a, it's a different story. So, so that really starts to clue me in then as I think about this question, because on the one hand, we do have this need and desire for truth, but you do have these characters, you do have these people that will sacrifice truth for pleasure. It's not all intellectual. The heart, the heart is at play. And there are times that there's, you know, what can you do but pray for that individual, you know, to be ready when that individual wants more uh, out of life, once that individual wants, wants to know truth. But, the, but, but there's one thing that I, I often will push back on people, though. Curious your thoughts on this, when people will tell me, oh, you know, I'm, I'm happy, I, I don't need God. And, and I don't believe them. I don't, I don't believe them. I, I think that people will try to deceive you, but people will even try to deceive themselves. And if they're honest, even though they're shunning truth, I think that deep down, they're still fighting within themselves for truth. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important insight, Andy, because I, what, what you've hit on really is, is the third point that I mentioned, which is that we talk about this thing called happiness. People find it, they claim to find it in their own strength, in their own resources, with no need for God and no consideration of God. And so they feel like, there's no need. I think a big part of it is, as you correctly say, uh, they're just deceiving. They're deceiving themselves. So they're not willing to be upfront about how they feel. I think there is a group though, that actually does think that they are happy. Um, whether, whether it's true or not is a different question. And then it really comes down to, well, what does God actually offer? And what is the reality of a relationship with him? And how does that compare to what you have now in your own strength? And this is when we kind of get into the, you know, Blaise Pascal's wager kind of space that I think we as, as followers of Jesus can be very upfront and confident in rejecting the premise of the question when people say, do I choose God or do I choose pleasure? So that trade-off, I think, needs to be rejected as a false dichotomy. Yeah, that was the... That was the thought that just went through my mind, right? You, you've you've created a, a false a false dilemma. It's a false dilemma. That's right. And I think so. Someone once said, you know, Jesus loves you so much that, you know, if you could find a better deal than what he has to offer, he would be the first one to tell you to take it. But you won't. <laughs> but you won't. But you won't. You just simply won't. Now we're both, I think, on laptops here, Andy. Now imagine for a second if 
I'd never seen a laptop in my life and someone presented me with one. But imagine that I was a chef, that I'd lived some kind of weird reclusive chef lifestyle in a kitchen. Someone gave me this laptop. I'd never seen it before. And the best sense I could make of this laptop when they handed it to me, because this is all I've seen in my kitchen growing up, um, is that this is a chopping board. And so I take it into the kitchen and I just start chopping vegetables with it because it looks similar to a chopping board to me. And it's actually not bad. It's flat. It's smooth. I can chop things. I plug it in. Lights come on. They entertain me while I'm chopping. It's all well and good. And then people say, are you happy? You know, with the laptops, everything working out. And I'm like, yeah, it's a great chopping board. Now, technically I'm using it for my own purposes and I'm getting by. I'm continuing to live life you know, cooking and chopping and that's fine. The problem is I've missed out on the full functionality and flourishing and optimization of the laptop. And why is that? It's because I have not understood fully what the laptop was made for. It's not until we understand the purpose for which something was made, then we can fully understand how its flourishing is optimized and its happiness is optimized. And the same thing goes for us. So we can work ourselves out in our own strength but at best, we're just going to be like chopping vegetables on ourselves, chopping vegetables on a laptop. If we want to know the purpose for which we were made, you have to go to the maker. Yeah. Same with an iPhone, same with a laptop, you know, same with a Tesla. You've got to go to the maker to know how something works best. And that's exactly what God offers us through his gospel message. He says, I know you, I made you, and I know you better than you know yourself. And because of that, in the same way that Apple Care knows how to optimize the functioning of an iPhone, I know how to optimize your function. And, and it's interesting, isn't it, that this is something when you're reading the Gospels, Jesus says repeatedly, and you can see this in, in various places like John 10 and elsewhere, where, where Jesus right. talks about human flourishing, and he offers that. He calls it the abundant life. He's talking about the, the, right. the best life. If you want to live the best life, as you were talking about, because this is my language, man, if you want to live the purpose you were created for in theology, we would talk about that as being the, real, the, the true glory of a thing. When a thing fulfills its purpose perfectly, fully, abundantly, that's when it flourishes. Exactly right. And your, you know, your John 10, 10 reference is probably the best one that I can think of too, where Jesus says, you know, I've come so you can have life and have it in abundance. And yeah, he's not just talking about eternal life there. Right. There's a very clear Greek word he uses. He's talking about bios. He's talking about life right now. And so a big part of the challenge, I think, and the, the mission of followers of Jesus is to communicate the message out there that this Christian life is not about getting a ticket to heaven because when you come to know Jesus, heaven starts right now. That's right. The abundance, the joy, the flourishing, the fulfillment of purpose, the optimization of living, all the hashtags, right? My best life, my blessed self, your best life, <laughs> all of that. We don't have, we don't disagree with those as ideals. What we are saying is the way to get those is in and through the person of Jesus. And that, that is the, one of the big answers, I think, to the question of why bother with God if I'm happy? Well, the short answer is because happiness is not enough. The happiness that we can generate in our own strength is simply not enough. We were made for something greater than temporary, temporal, physical happiness. We were made for joy, this qualitatively different thing the Bible talks about that is not anchored in temporary realities. It's anchored in eternal realities. And then that eternal reality of being in right relationship with our creator then flows out into the world today. And I think that's what Blaise Pascal was on about with his wager. He's like, you guys want to be happy? You guys want pleasure? You guys want satisfaction in life? Jesus is the best way to do that. Joe, there's this, there's this great quote, and I, I've shared it before. It's by Bertrand Russell, who a well-known atheist 
you know, before the new atheists, right? right. Like he wrote, he, he went so far, he's even writing a book called Why I'm Not a Christian. And one of the things that I just found so interesting in his autobiography, he chose to include a letter to this woman that he loved. And the letter dates October 23rd, 1916. Right. And what I find so interesting about this letter is it's just this window into the soul. And and one of the things that I've had to get myself in the habit of doing is remembering that people don't always let you look into what's going on in their lives. They will put on a facade. They'll put on an act. Right. And and sometimes you need to actually remind yourself that there is more going on than you see. And so here's this well-known atheist outspoken against Christianity and here's this moment he he even goes so far as publishing it and and here's a glimpse into his soul as he writes the center of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, a curious, wild pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains, something transfigured and infinite, the beatific vision, God. I don't find it. I don't think it is to be found, but the love of it is my life. It's like passionate love for a ghost. At times, it fills me with rage. At times, with wild despair. It is the source of gentleness and cruelty and work. It fills every passion that I have. It is the actual spring of life within me. I can't explain it or make it seem anything but foolishness. But whether foolishness or not, it is the source of whatever is any good in me. At most times now, I'm not conscious of it, only when I am strongly stirred, either happily or unhappily. I seek escape from it, though I don't believe I ought to. Wow. Wow. Uh, You know, People like Russell and Nietzsche, these like older atheists, they're just so authentic and in many ways much more authentic than some of the new atheists, not all of them, but some of them. I mean, that passage from Russell typifies, I think, the biggest misunderstood dynamic of what people broadly consider to be atheism or new atheism today. And it's Nietzsche's line that God is dead, whereas I still haven't found an atheist really who's proclaiming objectively that God is dead, even Nietzsche. What people are saying, and this very much comes through in that passage you just read, Andy, is that what they actually, you can see it in their hearts through the words, God is dead to them. Yeah, That's the problem. It's not that he's dead. That's not why they're upset uh, or angry. It's that he's dead to them. Um, And, you know, it's funny, early on in COVID, there was a global poll taken of just a subset of various belief groups um, of different religions and worldviews and how angry each of them was with God for COVID. Um, and as you as you would guess, the the angriest group, the angriest belief group with God because of COVID were the atheists. They were the most angry. Um, Interesting. Angry with this God that they claimed didn't exist, which really, you know, I think that's an important window into their hearts and minds and their struggles. It's that it's not that God's dead; it's that He's dead to them. So we're all grasping, and I mean that passage really opens it up beautifully. Well, it, that is interesting. I can't tell you the number of times that I have either met with atheists or read different atheists that at the end of the day, when I find out, you know, what led to their atheism is this internal struggle, this, this anger towards God, this, this frustration. And, and so it's interesting though, when, when somebody's willing and like in this passage to kind of open up the windows of their soul and you get a glimpse at what's actually going on, you start to realize and remember again, that you're dealing with human beings. That right. are that are broken and struggling, and although 
there are people that will pay you lip service and say, oh, you know, what do I need with God? I'm, I'm happy. And it's like, <laughs> again, are you really, Yeah. you know, and, 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 and what kind of happiness, as you've already said, do you have? I remember a friend of mine, her name's Noi, she's from Thailand. And she was, uh, the way she became a Christian was by seeking out a friend. She just, she felt lonely and felt like she needed a friend. And, and her aunt told her that she should go to church because Christians are, are friendly and would make friends with her. So she goes to church and finds out that her need for friendship was far deeper than she had realized when these new friends introduced her to God. And, right. it, and it transforms her life. And that's, that's quite telling, Andy, because what that shows is the qualitative difference of Christian love. Um, because there's there's no question that there's plenty of love out there. You know, everyone's everyone's singing and dancing and writing and crying about love for thousands of years. You know, the black eyed peas, where is the love? You know, the Beatles, all you need is love. There's no there's no debate about the importance of love. The problem is that the kind of love, the quality of love that we are capable of generating in our own strength is not good enough. We've been trying for thousands of years. It's not good enough. So what that very naturally leads us to is the conclusion that the love that we need has to come from somewhere else. It has to come from another source. Um, and that's why that friend of yours found that qualitatively different kind of love, because it wasn't love coming from these Christians. It was actually coming from the heart of God through these Christians into her life. That's right. And I think it's an important question to just give some thought to before we before we close here. And when you say, you know, it's not enough, that's, that's you know, the kind of happiness we can generate is not enough. This is something I've been thinking a lot about, because I think there's some people who might be tempted to say, oh, well, you know, sure it is when I'm partying with my friends or doing this or that, that, that gives me all the, the joy that I need. And it's, it's interesting because I, I think where the deception comes is that we can have these moments of happiness. We can have these these right. moments of joy, but they're constantly fleeting and, right. and leaving you longing for something more. Or life, you know, hits you with, with a storm, right? You lose a loved one. You find yourself in a pandemic. You lose your job. You know, the list goes on. Now, all of a sudden, you're like, uh, that happiness is not only fleeting, but that happiness does nothing in the real circumstances of life. It leaves me incredibly longing. Spot on, spot on, Andy. And I. So if we talk, we started talking about how truth is indispensable. Then we talked about how happiness is not enough. And then the third thing is that suffering is unavoidable. So it's not just that the happiness that we can generate in our own strength will never be as beautiful or wonderful as what God can give us, but suffering is coming one way or another. The world is broken, and each of us are broken. So suffering is an endemic reality for humankind, and because of that. It doesn't matter how happy you feel when you're out dancing with friends or scratching a mosquito bite or eating a bowl of chocolate ice cream. Um, at some point, because of the brokenness of the world, suffering is coming and it's it's not going to be easy um, and it's just part of the human condition. And every everyone, no matter what we believe, needs a response to suffering. We need a way to deal with it and get through it. And when you look at the other worldviews out there, you know, there are views that say that God's out there, but he doesn't care about your suffering. Just shut up and take it. There are others that say that it's it's all karma and karmic, so it's all your fault in this life or a previous life. There are others that say that it's just an illusion, so you just got to meditate yourself into nirvana or nothingness to extinguish the self. Um, and then the atheists say that it's all meaningless because we're just time plus matter plus chance, so your suffering is meaningless too. And, and this is where 
we turn then to the cross of Jesus Christ and you get not just the greatest long play source of joy, eternal joy, eternally anchored joy in human history, but you also get the, the most compelling immediate response to suffering where we have a God that actually stepped down into our suffering. He, he cared about us so much. He stepped into our suffering as a person, took it all onto himself, defeated it, and now invites us into relationship with him through which we get the two things that we need to deal with suffering, comfort and strength within it and hope beyond it. And the cross of Jesus Christ really comes to life when we look at the reality of that. One thing that I've been dwelling a lot on these days with regards to what you're talking about, Max, is if humans were created for the purpose of being in relationship with God and being in relationship with each other, it means then that everything that we're talking about here begins to come together. It's it's tied in. And right. and and that that brings a very interesting aspect to suffering because suffering starts to look different for a Christian. A, like you said, there's future hope, but B, uh, you know, and this is one that I think a lot of us don't give enough thought to, there is humanity in the suffering when we suffer with one another. Uh, like as an example, a friend of mine, his wife had a miscarriage and he was at my house pouring out his heart, soul, you know, crying over the loss of this child. Now, on the one hand, as a Christian, there was hope knowing that we we say that death isn't the final word. But there was this comfort of friendship, this comfort of relationship when you have somebody who cares deeply for you that is willing to sit with you and walk with you through those challenges of life. Absolutely right. And I mean, talking, you started off talking about how we would help and advise someone who's a follower of Jesus, who's walking with friends who perhaps are not, and how to come alongside them when their friend's view might be that they don't need God or they're happy without him or whatever. I think to finish on suffering is, is, is the perfect place to finish for exactly the reasons that you say. Because when someone is suffering, that's the time to come alongside them and to suffer with them and to pour out the love of Jesus into their lives just by being with them. And this is when uh, apologetics is in full flight and it's got very little to do with reason or arguments or deduction or induction or any of the stuff that you and I have been trained in and practicing. Um, it's really just about loving people well that's with right. the love of Jesus. And, and that's when I think you really do begin to give, give people a glimpse of Jesus Christ and his cross, um, which is, as I said, the greatest response to suffering humankind has ever known. And so to to, to see how people can come together in the midst of suffering, uh, believers, non-believers, people of various beliefs, um, is is absolutely right because our barriers necessarily just come down when we suffer. And, and I and I would take it a step further for people. Uh, again, this is something that God's just been working on me, teaching me. Uh, just recently, I was asked to pray over uh, a man who. He had, he had had COVID and then he'd gotten over it. He was in the hospital. He was dying. And, and, um, and, and, and as a pastor, you know, you, you do that. You have these moments where you're praying over people who are, who are dying. And he died uh, hours, hours later. And, and on the one hand, somebody could, could think, oh, what a, what a, you know, a loving act that I was with this individual praying for this individual. Um, and and uh, 
you know, that, that it, we kind of, I guess this is what I'm trying to get at, Max, is that we often, we get, we make a mistake of thinking that that love is one directional. Right. But there's this curious thing that's taking place where God's loving me, I'm loving other people, and those people are loving me. That that there is this that relationship isn't one directional. That relationship goes both ways. That me being with a, a and praying with a dying person, that I'm ministering to them and they're ministering to me as together we are in relationship with God. And and I know this might sound weird, but I walk through a lot of difficult circumstances with people. I'm, I'm sure you do as well. And I actually feel peace and joy in the midst of that as I walk with people in relationship with God. I, I don't feel sadness. Yeah, I, I totally hear you, Andy. And I've had, I've had similar um, experiences. I'm sure you've had countless experiences as a, as a pastor walking with people. But that, I mean, that also raises... The, the beauty and the power of the love that pours out of God's heart, which is that it actually gets stronger and more magnified as it's poured out to other people and then reflected back. Anything else, when you pump it out, it gets weaker the further away it gets pumped through, right? And the more channels you pump through, the weaker it gets. Um, whereas with the love of Jesus. It reverberates. <laughs> it reverberates. And it's because the Holy Spirit's in play, you know? It's, it's, yeah. not, it's not just, it, there's no use by date. There's no use by date on it. It's eternal love. It's it's unstoppable, um, grave opening love, and that's just that's the beauty of how that works. And we can't generate that in our own strength. We need God for that. And I think that that's where maybe some people just need to appreciate that that that's the power of you know when somebody will say, "Oh, you don't need to say anything. You just need to be there." Well, that's right because it's the relationship with, that's dynamic. It's not it's not your words. It's not your wisdom that's dynamic. It's your presence. It's it's the relationship, the relationship that that God has with us, that we have with God, and that we have with one another. You know, when when we when we understand God's love for us and our love for God, I think it empowers us to walk with people, even that might be in the, a self deception that they've got all that they need, they're happy because they've got the car, the job, the diploma, or whatever it might be, but that we can still be faithful friends, family, we could still be faithful followers of Jesus in the midst of that, um, which which I think would be doing exactly what you're talking about. Uh, one is being willing to share truth with them. Uh, and the what was the third one, Max? Share truth. So, the indispensability of truth, yeah. and then the fact that suffering is not avoidable, and then thirdly, that happiness is not enough. Right. And so, th- those other two, the, the happiness is not enough and that suffering is unavoidable. I mean, in some ways, it means that, that sometimes it's just a matter of praying for people and right. waiting for a moment that you can, maybe they will open up the window of their heart so that you can actually minister to them. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, and as you just said, Andy, I think faithfulness and the, your use of the word faithfulness is, is spot on and the perfect landing point. Because, you know, as Mother Teresa said, the Bible and the Lord never calls us to success. He just calls us to faithfulness. Um, that That is success for the follower of Jesus. So, as for, provided that we are faithful and we have our hearts and minds focused on Christ and we're pouring out his love on those around us and, and we're just there, we're staying with them, we're journeying with people, the opportunities will come and um, the truth will ultimately flow out and into their hearts. Well, thank you so much, uh, Max, for joining us. If listeners want to learn more about your ministry and hear more from you, where would you send them? 
Yeah, thanks so much, Andy. It's always a pleasure to chat and to be with you. We have a website, uh, which is www.thinkingfaith.asia, um, and we have hashtags on uh, Instagram and on Facebook too, uh, we, and you can just do use the search functions there, Thinking Faith Asia. So Thinking Faith Asia is how we how we go in the in the social media world. So please do check us out if there's anything we can help with. I hope our material is useful. And Andy, it's always a pleasure to partner with you. And so all our love and wishes to the AC team as always. Yes. And to you and your family, as you get over COVID, I pray that it is quick uh, and that, uh, that you guys are healthy soon. Thank you listeners for listening to the AC podcast. This has been a ministry of Apologize Canada, and we'll be coming back next week with more things to think about. See you then. 